This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner and Momenta Partners, and welcome to our Digital Leadership Series. In this series of conversations, we're highlighting some of the best and brightest minds and practitioners in the business as we focus on their journeys into digital transformation, what they learned, what their successes were, what the challenges were, along with lessons that are relevant for you today. We hope you enjoy our explorations and get value from it. And always, we look for your feedback and suggestions. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our Momenta podcasts. And today, as another episode in our leadership series, we have Sadagapan Singham, who is Senior Vice President Global and Business Head Cloud Native SaaS at HCL Technologies. Now, a little bit of, of context. Uh, uh, Sada and I have been speaking for a number of years on uh, different trends in the industry, and, and uh, I've found him to be one of the most thoughtful and uh, insightful people uh, in, the, in, the, in the industry uh, when, when talking about uh, certainly my prior area of focus at, at my uh, prior firm where it was very much focused on uh, cloud transformation, uh, SaaS software, but uh, he's got a, he's got a wide ranging uh, area of interests and, uh, you know, a, a lot of super interesting thoughts. And, and again, I would just want to say it's a, it's a pleasure having you join us, Sada. Pleasure joining you, Ed, you know, uh, one of the industry's stalwarts is always a pleasure talking to you, Ed. I'm very <laughs> glad that I got an invitation to be part of this, you know, uh, running podcast series. Absolutely. So, let's let's start with a bit of history. Could you share a bit about you know what's what's shaped your view of of technology and 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 just share a bit of of, of the path that brought you to your current role at, at HCL? Sure. Like many, you know, I started you know during the dot com period. Um, uh, I you know uh, those days we were focused on creating um, enterprises you know with the latest and the greatest of the uh, front end technologies i slowly moved you know from creating the front end to focusing on the business processes which took me to focus on the uh, customer relationship management space as well as in you know, the supply chain space product product life cycle management space so those were the days when all the uh, pioneering enterprises are being uh, started primarily out of the silicon valley and uh, my journey, more or less, you know, started along the same time. The only thing that I did was I consciously took a decision to operate um, at a global scale, which means it's not only managing business around the world, but being there at the right places, being there in places where business and technology really intersect and make a massive difference. So I spent considerable amount of time, uh, close to four or five years, um, in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, covering, you know, all the countries in the region from Singapore to Australia to Japan to Korea to China to uh, the Middle Eastern markets. And what was an eye-opener for me for somebody who moved from the U.S. to these markets was the scale, the range, and the utility value of technology was much better, much better leveraged in these markets. And for example, when I saw 20 years back the type of you know cellular technology advancements in Japan and Korea and the type of applications that I saw in the early uh, part of the century, I knew that you know this is going to be um, the onset of a global revolution. And that's the reason I stayed focused on technology 
And I always believed that, you know, there's a lot of innovation happening in the uh, Western world, and there's a lot of application of those innovations happening on the, um, on the Asian side of the world. And I thought, you know, if we, if we can sort of build our experience and the insights based on these two legs, we'll be able to sort of, you know, uniquely capitalize on creating the best possible value for our customers. And also, I am based in the Silicon Valley, but I have a global reach. And within HCL, I joined, you know, HCL almost nine years back to, to have a charge to drive the uh, cloud business. From there, I went to drive the global consulting business, business consulting business, and then the, uh, the portals, the content management, the enterprise front, end, front office technologies. And uh, as many of the enterprises began to adopt to uh, SaaS in a very aggressive and a highly scalable way, we realized the need to have a leadership a vision about how to sort of you know, create and uh, deliver the right set of SaaS technology and processes for better business results for the customers. And that's how I reached um, this stage in HCL where I had the charter to sort of drive all the SaaS business for HCL globally across our customer base. So you made a really interesting comment about the different pace of adoption in from your time in Asia and how that applies globally. Um, I would love to get your perspective on mm-hmm. how the, you know, the, the advantage of being, say, uh, uh, you know, we'll call it a, a you know, a, a late mover can, can really provide you know, lessons that, uh, you know, that allow more rapid adoption of newer technologies. And I think of you know, for instance, some you know, in some emerging nations, for instance, in Africa, where they they skipped landline and went right to uh, right to cellular technologies, and uh, if you if you skip the you know the big heavy on-premise client server technologies, you can go right into into cloud. Were there what what were some of the uh, maybe some of the key experiences and lessons that you know that you know that helped shape your your global view of of the of technology adoption? Absolutely. I mean, you are spot on, Ed, you know. Many of the emerging nations, they skipped, you know, multiple layers of technology evolution, and they were able to join the uh, global movement, you know, with the latest and uh, greatest, which means the sunk cost is actually lower. But at the same time, it also comes with um, a lot of, you know, difficulty in taking those technology to customers. For example, how do we create a billing solution, you know, for example, let's take China Mobile or Airtel in India. How do you create a billing solution which is um, compliant with all the uh, regulated needs of the respective countries and reach out to hundreds of, hundreds of millions of customers? How do we onboard 25 million customers you know, every month? You know, these are all challenges you know, which the world has not seen um, at the time in the develop, developing world we're trying to adopt um, these new technologies. So I think the key difference was, you know, the Western world has been very sophisticated, you know. They're focus on customers, the focus on excellence uh, on service to customers, the ability to be uh, customer-centric in their thinking, the ability to put the customer at the forefront of you know, the business decision-making process. That was a great learning for the uh, Asian countries where traditionally there had been, you know, been demand and supply constraint, and therefore you know, the supply had always had the upper hand. But when this mass explosion of technology and the outreach happened at a scale that they never seen, they began to realize the need to have customer centricity. They began to understand the key elements of you know success that the Western enterprises drive. 
that are centered around the customers and how they are uh, able to sort of bring it there. But however, the ability of a localization that the emerging nations were able to do, that is something that you know the Western nations you know probably uh, had an opportunity to learn after the fact that um, you know if you were to roll out something in China or India or even Africa, each one of the uh, equivalent of the American provinces have a different culture, different regulations, different language, and sometimes you know are different mechanisms of you know um, uh, revenue collection. So all those meant there are multiple business models that got baked inside. That was the key element of um, uh, the next wave of innovation the Western set of you know, providers are beginning to embrace. So it is a complete loop, you know, it obviously the West has a, a clear edge. From this edge, you know, as it moves to the East, you hear a lot of learnings, which is again fed back into the Western uh, nation's uh, learning and which helps you to create new waves of innovation. I think this has been a tremendous, you know, a learning process a very immersive process, but an extremely, you know, full of, you know, uh, learnings and extremely full of, you know, um, newer layers of um, uh, experimentation that got baked inside, providing superior results. So it's a fascinating journey, uh, Ed, so to say. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that you you know you you, you bring that up as um, when you start looking at, at at certain processes that become you know the cloud you know cloudified or cloud enabled or SaaS enabled and and I think now we don't even think about uh, the challenges involved with with moving a uh, moving processes to the cloud. But would love to get your sense um, just looking across the enterprise. Uh, today and going back to you know some of the the initial work that you that you did in in driving cloud forward. I mean, what were um, uh, yeah, what what do what are some of the areas of uh, business areas that, that you find at this point are uh, you know are you know firmly you know firmly committed to you know to cloud innovation and you know others where there may be you know still some uh, some greenfield ahead. To uh, or or even opportunities for you know for for even conversion of, of on-premise solutions. Sure. So I think the biggest change, in my opinion, is you know, security, and the biggest pivot is around uh, regulations. So, for example, um, uh, early you know in the early part of this decade, you know when I used to travel uh, in places like South Korea, for example, let me take Incheon. The Incheon Airport or Seoul City Drive. And every time you take the airport bus and go to the city, you see that you know, those buses were completely Wi-Fi enabled. I'm talking about you know, 15 years back, right? But that time, you know, it used to be you know something you know uh, pretty you know amazing to see that you know it's completely Wi-Fi. It's you know you're, you're able to sort of you know start work from the time you land there, and that one-hour journey you get accomplished so many things before you freshen up and go to the first business meeting. But today. If I were to do it again, I will first ask the question, you know, is it secure? Does it comply with all the regulations, right? And how is this data being used? How is it being, you know, who is capturing all this data? So what's the chance that this data is only between me and the provider? How does it sort of you know, change the profile that I have with the online service providers if I begin to use these services? There are so many questions for which we seek answers before we just say yes to connecting to your public Wi-Fi. I think you know that is the biggest change in my opinion. One is security, and second is you know, confirming the regu regulations, right? For example, how much of country-specific data, region-specific data, how these data are, how these data are captured, how they are processed, right? As well as how they are retained, how they are retired, how they get deployed, and who is the master of all this data? 
Can I get back all the data that I helped actually populate? So these type of questions and advancements that the Western companies have made today, these are becoming global um, uh, examples. And I think you know this is advancing the state of the art to the point that you can't have an enterprise deployment without having answers to these tough questions. I think that is a real progress, um, if you ask me, Ed, over the last you know few years. Yeah, is it is, uh, and from your perspective, I mean, GDPR certainly had a lot of impact on forcing companies to to take inventory of their of their data management, their data security processes. I mean, from your your perspective, uh, and now it's been. Uh, you know, we're we're coming up. It's been a, uh, I believe it's you know over a year since since GDPR uh, has been kind of a formal requirement. You know, to to what extent has that been? Uh, is is there the clarity of having a GDPR uh, type regulation really had a had a global impact? And and are you seeing uh, the GDPR being adopted as a as a global standard? I think, you know, I have mixed views on GDPR, right? So one is I am firmly on the side that, you know, data needs to be regulated and data needs to be regulated to the point that, you know, there is a clear distinction definition of, you know, uh, where the ownership is, how it is processed, and somebody has to take responsibility of the data through its entire life cycle. So to that extent, you know, I clearly welcome uh, GDPR. Uh, I welcome, you know, uh, data regulation-centric issues. But I think GDPR has gone pretty rigorous, in my opinion. I think I don't. I don't really know whether you know uh, taking regulation to that level is it really going to benefit the customers. And I would love to see some formal studies coming out and saying, out of GDPR, these benefits A, B, C, D have come. So it looks more like you know the uh, the power of the uh, union to sort of you know, bring together um, a number of prosperous nations and force standards. That is what has been demonstrated. I would love to see what specific benefits GDPR has driven to end consumers and to technology companies and to society as a whole. So that is something I would love to see. But I'm firmly on the side that the data cannot go unregulated. There cannot be an invasion or an unregulated use of data. And there must be ownership of data throughout its data life cycle. But if GDPR is the only model, I'm not too sure. I would love to see mm. what results coming out of GDPR suggest before I take a view on that. Yeah, I'd love to get your your perspective, given that there's been so much pushback. Uh, I mean, with with you being based in uh, Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. you know, recently there's a lot of pushback against uh, Google and Facebook, in particular. The the these, um, well, I, I I don't know if you had a chance to read uh, Shoshana Luboff's book Surveillance Capitalism, but I yes. think there's there's quite a bit of of concern about these business models, and I'd love to get you know, your sense in, in terms of how these debates are playing out, particularly with the, with the enterprise customers that, that, that you're working with? I think, you know, by and large, the enterprise customers are uh, very comfortable so long as you have uh, secure data, so long as you're able to sort of you know, confirm to uh, existing regulations, uh, local as well as you know, continental level regulations. I think the enterprise customers are uh, fairly happy. The only thing they want to make sure is, you know, all these regulations are sort of, you know, baked inside the software model itself so that, you know, whenever there is an update required, it happens automatically, which is surprisingly, which is what, you know, SaaS provides, the ability to sort of provide a single instance solution around the world um, that actually creates such a big, you know, plus plus for the enterprises. They are quite welcoming. 
But however, coming back to the larger issue of, you know, Silicon Valley versus the whole world, I think, you know, the key thing that we need to uh, look is the speed at which the developments are taking place, right? For example, there has been a, a recent, you know, a Facebook data breach saying that, you know, some of the employees have been able to read the passwords internally, but it was never misused, right? Now, when I looked into many of the enterprises um, that we work with, even some advanced you know, financial tech you know, customers um, that we work with, when I reviewed their process, uh, this, is, this has been a standard process across multiple industries. So I think you know, the answer to this is the state of the art has to improve across the board. It's not, it's not correct only to sort of you know, uh, make all the Silicon Valley companies feel guilty about it. It is something that, you know, as an industry, we need to come together and define what the state of the art is, define what the standards are. And if you can focus on defining those technology standards and create that body of knowledge and say that this is the minimum bar which we expect of any enterprise operating globally, then I think it, it would make sense. But if some of the practices are the practices that exist across industries, but only singling out Silicon Valley companies for that, you know, that may be, you know, taking activism to other extent. Now, that's what I feel, Ed. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up standards. We've had a, a couple of conversations on our podcast about the you know the challenges, per, particularly if you get outside of really traditional IT in, into operational technologies, for instance, where there you know there really are not a lot of defined security standards. I mean, there's FIPS certifications and and that sort of thing, and and then of course the just the the challenges of, of managing the uh, the interplay and the uh, and the really sort of multi-directional flow of data across multiple systems and clouds it's it's enormously challenging um, you know I'd love to get your sense about the uh, you know, if we if we if we if we go a little bit deeper from the sort of the conceptual side into you know sort of practical implementation of mm -hmm. data governance, you know, what in your view are some of the uh, most useful technological advances in recent years, as well as somebody some of the areas that you continue to face as really big challenges to uh, to address from. It really more of a, a more of a technology perspective. Sure, so I think you know I would think that you know um, the the data lakes uh, that enterprises the enterprise data lakes I think that is a backbone on which you know many of the advantages as well as the possible uh, breaches happen. I think we need to sort of you know get it right. You know the way we see it is if you're able to look at your data uh, from a monitoring standpoint, if you can score ten out of ten. And um, if, you're, if the ability of the enterprise to create insights out of that, if it is 10 out of 10, and then, you know, once you reach that level of maturity, you go to optimize the uh, data. And that's a tougher challenge, you know, because, you know, that means that, you know, we need to have a prescriptive analytics to optimize the, actually the key business processes that either throw data out or consume data. And that gets delivered to your customers, you know, frontline employees, partners, and channels, right? So if you actually get the optimization um, exercise um, correct, then we have to see how these um, are actually used for monetization, right? For example, how the insights are leveraged. How do the uh, sort of convert these um, data insights into products, into services, into markets, you know, into channels, into audiences and partners, both to and fro? 
Then I think, you know, if you get 10 out of 10 in all these four different things, then I think an enterprise has sort of evolved. And what I see typically today is less than 20% of the enterprises, big global enterprises, I'm talking about G2000, less than 20% of them are ready uh, to be, you know, scored in a 10 out of 10 in all these four phases. And after this comes the metamorphosis, essentially completely transforming your company into an analytics-enlightened you know, business enterprise where the data sort of uh, feeds back into you to create you know, the best possible you know, um, um, uh, business mo- the enabling model for driving new layers of business. So I think the answer to this is you know, if somebody is able to sort of visualize from an enterprise standpoint, where do they monitor the data? What are the insights that they can get? Are they fully satisfied with the type of insight collection and the application of those insights? And then are we able to sort of optimize the data with the right, you know, or data-like technologies? What are the enterprise, you know, data standards that we have? And how do we define governance at the enterprise level, at the local business level? If you get all these right, and then if you're able to sort of, you know, transform this to a monetization um, paradigm, and if you're able to do it successfully across multiple channels, product lines and service lines and geographies and business entities, then I think that is the nirvana state that, you know, enterprises want to get into that helps them to create that, you know, closing the loop ability to use the data to sort of keep improving the business. I think this has been the, uh, this is the prescription that we typically have. This is the framework through which we move the enterprises from left to right. And we see that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, less than 20% of the enterprises have been able to get past the third gate here. And that is where we see a lot of opportunities today, right? That's a really interesting insight about uh, really how far along enterprises are, and and I think what you've articulated really is the really the broader concept of digital transformation that incorporates uh, technology as well as under rethinking the business, rethinking monetization models. So, you know, uh, I'm interested from your perspective this you know this third stage. I mean, what is it? You know, what are these obstacles that are that are really the most difficult to overcome for you know, organizations really to move past the the initial instrumentation of their processes and and putting in the technologies really to to get to get closer to the sort of the you know data enlightened uh, state sure. where they yeah sure sure. So I think, you know, um, um, let me elaborate briefly on what the technology elements uh, that I mentioned last uh, for the previous you know, uh, part of the conversation and then go back to your question. I think the, the relevant set of technologies that bring the differentiation are data sciences, artificial intelligence, machine learning, data lakes, IOTs, blockchains, all have transformative abilities. Now, the question is, what are the hindrances? What are the limitations? What are the inhibitions, right? So clearly, these pan out at three levels. So one is at the uh, at the changes in change level, the change management level. Second is, you know, uh, at a process level, and third is at a scale level, right? So changes in change, we all know that, you know, the whole paradigm of, you know, um, soft is hard and hard is soft, that holds true, uh, true even today. So given the multiplier effect all these technologies have across enterprises, the fear and the possibilities also are very unrealistic in terms of in terms of visualizing, right? For example, somebody who is running a department is very worried about you know how his hierarchy, how his span of influence is going to get curtailed, or whether the powers that he has will will they become small or will they go non-existent? 
to somebody imagining that you know you touch a button and everything will behave as so you know will happen i the ability to sort of uh, communicate to customers at all channels at all levels and at um, real time and being able to collect the data and feed it back and take decisions so we see that the expectations um, at both ends of the spectrum are too daunting to achieve right so therefore it that itself creates um, a fair psychosis and um, an element of you know fair uncertainty and doubt and that's why change management becomes the most important um, uh, issue here the second pillar on which you know uh, we have, everything requires some addressing is processes for example many times you know we see that um, the enterprises want to have processes redefined that suit their best interest within the industry or the other extreme people want to emulate you know um, extremely diverse industries the processes and try to bring in that level of service for example an insurance company trying to get the same level of service which um, let's say a quick service restaurant can give and that's a far cry because it's going to touch multiple levels of processes it has got to sort of go on you know attack multiple legacy systems and uh, sort of you know loop through multiple governance and um, uh, multiple levels of integration before it throws back the results so therefore you know we need to be realistic from a process standpoint as to how much you want to stretch and once you have gone to that level how much you want to stretch more and how do you want to continue the journey so defining that process maturity layer itself is going to be a lot of work and the third is scale you know this is absolutely the biggest differentiator today right a small company you know with very little you know infrastructure with very little experience in the field can go and you know uh, knock the uh, big titans in the in in the industry if they get this scale element right for example a company like warby parker you know so which was um, completely built out of you know uh, a rented technology so to say if they can go and give competition to the likes of lexartica then we are talking about you know a small upstart coming in completely approving the edifice on which large enterprises are built which is longevity customer loyalty as well as the brand value so therefore to think scale that you know if you want to do it now can you do it you know um, across the globe across all the channels across all the service uh, mechanisms can it cover all the processes and these are all big changes for some companies to even think of and those three in my opinion are the key inhibitors towards adopting successful digital transformation in their whole entire life cycle journey Ed, if you ask me no that's a, a great example too and and i think what's you know when you when you highlight warby parker uh, right i mean this this is a, you know it's it's kind of a vertically orient, uh, vertically integrated small company but Loxotica, I know I don't know how many people appreciate that this is the company that has dominates so many of the the brands in in uh, prescri- in eyeglass and eyeglass frames. I mean, they I That's think close to ninety percent of the market has been is dominated because they've they've just they bought up the market. They in a sense they uh, the markup is enormous, so it's incredibly profitable. So you know the the opportunity for a I mean, to fight against, you know, they've got brand scale, but for a company like Warby Parker to compete, you know, they're, I mean, they're the availability of globally scalable technology resources has never been more, uh, more accessible to startups. And, you know, I'd love to get your, a bit of perspective on firms that have done it right. 
and if there are any lessons or uh, you know common characteristics of you know firms that have really managed to, uh, to you know to become winners in the in their markets, whether they're whether they're a startup or or either reinventing themselves. Absolutely, you know, um, um, like you know, like um, Wabi Parker, we can talk about you know uh, Stripe. You know, it has taken the digital uh, process, payment processing market by storm, right? Likewise, you know, uh, uh, Livango, which actually is uh, focused on the diabetes control market. So, what I see that is, first of all, it is vision and the and the and the ability to sort of think big and think aggressive. And think that you know, regardless of you know the entrenched competition on the entrenched you know uh, big big guys out there, we will still be able to make that you know a mark in the marketplace and work relentlessly on that you know every day every hour. Then these startups actually make all the difference. So they got to obviously take a few calls. So one is you know they need to think you know global scale or they need to sharply define the markets where they want to focus so that you know they don't make any missteps. Second is, you know, get all the technology ducks aligned extremely well and also get the right domain knowledge embedded because most of the industries, one of the biggest, you know, more to competition in several industries are the are regulations, right? So we need to be on the right side of regulations. I see this happening every industry, whether it is, you know, from payroll providers to payment processors to, uh, to consumer goods companies to consumer, you know, non-durable companies to quick service restaurants. We see this end. This is completely enormously um, exhaustive list. And where I see that, you know, there is no industry that we can talk about except probably an energy industry or a utility industry. Barring those, I see that across all industries, there are very promising upstarts that are really, really threatening uh, the uh, the dollar value stream of the larger uh, uh, larger customers out there. And I think, you know, they are actually leveraging on the concept of asset service in a very substantial way, leveraging their ability to hyper-personalize for their customers, leveraging several of the AI ML uh, techniques which are available mostly as APIs and make those big distinctions. And I think, you know, their ability to be intimate with the customers, their ability to respond to customers very quickly and offer, you know, very critical services in a very simplistic manner, that sets them apart um, uh, from, you know, the big players who have their own ways of you know, defining what a value means to customers. I think that's a big shift, um, if you ask me, uh, Ed. The customer centricity, ability to make things available to customers in the most simplistic form and in the way that the customer wants and make it available in the easiest form to the customer, that is where the small players are able to approach the established you know, giants in respect to fields. No, that's uh, that's great insight, and you alluded to you know, machine learning and AI, and I'd love to get your sense. I mean, since you've been you've been pretty deep into the uh, you know into the into analytics technology and and, and BI, but the impact of uh, on AI you know is uh, is certainly caused a you know or created. There's a lot of buzz around it, and there's uh, enormous amount of investment. And I'd like to get your sense of of what. What's changed in terms of the uh, you know the impact of the technology, the pace of it, and really where the you know what the, where where the perception in the market is correctly aligned with reality, and where there may be some misperceptions around AI. I think you know the if you look at you know the changes this AI machine learning have been able to bring inside enterprises, these are extremely extremely um, impactful, right? 
for example, I see a recommendation engines, right? For example, you you have all these you know, data sets coming from the customers, from from sales, from content, from different channels. And you know, you got a great you know, enterprise you know, data lake uh, setup. I, I talked about the possible data maturity uh, journey an enterprise can take. Once all these are in place, how do you sort of make the best use? How do you sort of you know uh, pump it out to the customer and understand their responses and use those insights that you get back from the customers to improve the enterprise? That's the closing the loop. And here I see the AI ML techniques are really, really advanced state of the art. For example, the recommendation engines, the ability to do collaborative filtering, the ability to sort of you know uh, create you know sparse data, understand the limitations of those data. And and also look at you know this cold hard starts you know um, all those issues. Now these are all things that you know that clearly distinguish the company's performance if applied correctly, right? Then in terms of customer support, for example, in terms of natural language processing, we knew that you know ten years back only the banks used to have this voice assisted technology, right? That very few enterprises used to have. Today, if, if there is no enterprise of size and global reach that does not have multiple ways of you know providing customer support. And clearly, the AI, uh, the AI technologies sort of helped, you know, advance the state of the art there. But more importantly, where it matters for the enterprise internally, in terms of demand prediction, in terms of price optimization, the AI and the, um, and the ML technologies have really offered a, a leaps and bounds in terms of, you know, advancements for the enterprises to digest. For example, in the past, you know, the enterprises used to look at, you know, a handful of attributes. You no, know, it's like you know, it's like a dip test, you know, to see how the uh, absorption is, you know, in, in in the market. And they used to have work with limited data. They used to work with you know uh, the sample size of you know of their own making that comes along um, that that brings its own uh, level of skew uh, to the data. And the forecast used to be mostly crude. And also at the end of the day, there are a set of you know old old time business planners. Who actually manually collect all the data and come to some conclusion about what's going to move, move across. But today, I think you know we have got the ability to to do something like a simulation in real time, right? You can look at thousand attributes, you can look at unlimited data, right? Then you can have highly detailed forecast. Then you can sort of you know, slice and dice the reports in different ways, right? All this means that you know the enterprises gain the advantage to have a better local knowledge of demand. And that means we're talking about, you know, ability to leverage history of all items, of all products, across all channels, for all promos, for all forecasts. And therefore, you know, that gives a superior level of, you know, advantage to uh, enterprises today. So this, I think, you know, this is going to be a non-stoppable journey. It's only going to get better and better and better. And, you know, the the organization which initiated on this side, in on this uh, journey, they, they better not stop. They keep moving forward and forward on this because, you know, it's not only where you start, but how you progress, that will make the difference. But in terms of, you know, the misperceptions about AI, I think it's mostly with, you know, the, the non-business people, if you ask me, you know, there are people who are genuinely concerned about, you know, where this will uh, take, uh, uh, where this will lead to, for example, in terms of you know, potentially replacing humans to being misused for, you know, uh, wrong purposes. So those are all quite valid. And I would think that, you know, commercial enterprises of scale today will have the common sense and wisdom to know where to stop, even though it is very difficult to sort of, you know, make a universal call and as to where to stop. But I do 
credit the judge, credit you know the ability the credit the ability of humans to make the right judgment in terms mm. of you know how far to leverage them and where to stop yeah. but i think you know clearly humongous progress is being made in this through these technologies yeah no doubt are there any other technologies that you're optimistic about i know that blockchain of course had a uh, quite the uh, you know quite a quite a level of excitement about it last year although in enterprises it seems like people are really uh, you know really focusing quite a bit on uh, trying to build uh, production solutions but love to get your thoughts on any other uh, kind of adjacent technologies that you think will have a, a big impact for enterprises in particular over the next several years i think iot and analytics right so the ability to create data out of you know um, non human situations right and non codified non human situations and use the data to oh, to sort to integrate those data into your business decision processing mix that actually makes a huge difference and uh, when you combine predictive analytics with iot we are talking about being able to create new business models that goes beyond the inventory but essentially goes towards you know optimizing performance across the entire extended supply chain and that's where i think the 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 boundary of an enterprise actually collapses if you get the right iot done across the entire supply chain which is the true value of you know any uh, extended supply chain to actually um, make sure that the right parts of the supply chain focus on the right things but still as a whole the chain supply chain works together and this vision becomes reality through iot therefore i'm a big otri on iot and analytics that go hand in hand along with ai and ml and these will actually characterize the success stories of all the enterprises to come in the future ed oh that's that's great are there um you know as you look forward love to get kind of your your sense of what you're optimistic about and any lingering concerns that that keep you up at night I think you know um, uh, I'm a big believer in first of all I'm a big believer in uh, human race and the ability of the human race to take the right calls so nothing keeps keeps me up in the night right so even though the ability for you know these technologies to sort of you know, to disrupt you know to actually cross over a fine safe line to to create destructive mon- monsters out of that is latent there but I do believe in the human ability to uh, take the right uh, to draw the line where it, things don't move beyond that but however from a uh, from a uh, what do you call from a um, opportunity standpoint i do believe that you know there are going to be lot more that's going to happen along this paradigm that i described you know for example whether it is you know uh, image processing or you know or uh, voice detection replication or, or motion control or robotics or ambient sensors or natural language processing and all this i think you know we are just you know uh, touching the you know uh, surface i think we are actually going to see huge um, advancements in each of these dimensions that means you know there are going to be enablement of new technologies and new business models which will actually accelerate the progress that enterprises have in terms of you know adopting technologies to uh, to drive better business in business outcomes so i think this is going to be a very powerful journey and we are in my opinion at the onset of the journey um uh, ed but if you ask me what are the um what are the concerns i have as i told you, you know i do believe in uh, human intelligence but i do believe that you know like what uh, evil harry recalls right essentially we are going to see a rich man being able to define you know uh, 
new levels of beauty and new types of brain. So the, to that extent, you know, these technologies can actually advance. And that is something that we need to, um, you know, watch how it progresses and where to draw the line. No, that's that's super helpful. So um, now this has been, uh, as as always, a, a you know a fascinating conversation. I think the uh, you know the last last question I always like to ask is whether you have a a good book or resource recommendation you could share for our listeners. Absolutely. Okay. So let me do two things, right? So I do read a lot, right? However, what I'm going to suggest is, you know. I'm going to suggest two books which got published in the second half of last year, but I think, you know, the impact of these two books are very, very high, right? The first, in my opinion, is um, Blitzscaling, Reid Hoffman. Amazing book. It talks about, because we are living in an age where we think an upstart can come and disclose the, you know, um, existing giants, right? How to do that, you know, I had to see a book which has been able to codify all these things together into one particular, you know, body of knowledge, and that's where I like, you know, Reid Hoffman's ability to um, bring those together in a very structured way. For example, the type of techniques he talks about, the growth factors that he talks about, the obstacles that he talks about, the business model patterns that he talks about, the principles, the stages. It's amazing, the transitions. All these are amazing you know, ideas that he have been able to sort of codify into one body of knowledge. Therefore, I would recommend that, you know, blitz scaling is something that every enterprise leader whether he is in, he or she is inside a large enterprise or an upcoming um, a startup, you know, they should definitely read and read. And I have read that book in at least six, seven times. And every time um, it opens new levels of thinking inside my mind. The second book I would, I would love to recommend is um, um, Evil Noah Harari's, you know, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, right? So, oh, yeah. You, yeah. So if you if you look at it, you know, in this whole conversation, I alluded to the fact that you know the human mind knows where to the human the human race knows where to stop and um, you know where to how to leverage the technology progress and more importantly where it can uh, stop. But I think you know Harari's book, you know, this is probably the best that I have seen in terms of what possibilities could exist in uh, around, on developments around biotech, infotech, and how you know. Um, uh, humans can potentially get replaced by advances here and how the rich will be able to con to sort of enhance their brains and bodies. That's a very uh, startling thought to think that, you know, next generation, we'll, we're going to see the rich people, they define how they look, how they think. You mm. know, that's going to be completely, um, you know, turn the equation upside down and how, do, how we need to be aware to sort of, you know, stop that type of, you know, um, a regression. It's not a progression, in your opinion, a regression happening. It opens up lots of information around this. So I would think that, you know, uh, Evil Harari is something that, you know, every one of his work has been great, but this one particular thing stands out in my opinion. And these are the two things, you know, I would love to recommend for uh, uh, deep reading, if you ask me. Those are, that's great. I, I, uh, I, those are, those are both terrific recommendations. I wasn't familiar with uh, the, the latest from Reid Hoffman. And, and of course he's uh, Always brilliant and, and, and insightful. Um, well, this has been a uh, as as I you know all as is always the case. It's a, a fascinating and insightful uh, conversation. Uh, this has been uh, 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 we've been speaking with Sadagapan Singham, who is a senior vice president global and business head of cloud native SaaS at uh, HCL Technologies. And again, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at 
Momenta Partners and another episode of our uh, Leadership Series podcast. And thank you once again for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Ed. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners with an episode of our Digital Leaders series. Please check our website at momenta.partners for archived versions of prior podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digitization journey. 